Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. 90 episodes. Thanks for being here. And thanks for being here today and for all the previous times you've been here. It's been a lot of fun to put together 90 of these short little podcasts that uh, hopefully have found a way into your subscription list and also have found their way into a niche in the fly fishing podcast world. I've enjoyed it. It's fun to sit down with uh, some notes, some of my writing, the microphone, and to talk briefly. Again, as I've said from the beginning, the purpose of the Casting Across Fly Fishing podcast is to augment and serve as kind of a companion piece to the writing on castingacross.com. But I've really found that they are very different. They do they kind of live symbiotically with each other. They uh, serve different purposes. Sometimes I'll write something and it'll turn into a podcast. Sometimes I'll say something, an offhanded comment. I usually don't use a whole lot of notes, and so sometimes things just pop into my mind, and I'll say them on the podcast, and I think, you know what, that'd be a really cool thing to explore more fully, but since I just talked about it, now I'm going to write about it. And a lot of those uh, comments and thoughts come from listeners, and they come from readers. So thank you. I do appreciate every listen, every one of those numbers, every one of those ticks that goes in a little graph showing who's downloading this or who's reading a uh, article on castingacross.com. I appreciate it. Not because it mysteriously transforms into some sort of internet currency, but because uh, it just know, I, I know that something that I've made, somebody is appreciating. And along those lines, before we get into the meat of today's podcast, I do want to say I appreciate all of the reviews and ratings on iTunes. That matters. I still don't know why it matters, but it matters in getting this in front of more people. So I do appreciate those. Uh, keep them coming. All right, on to today's podcast. It is the 90th episode, and as I've done every 10 episodes, I want to interact with some listener and reader feedback. So the very first one that I wanted to talk about comes from Frank, and Frank asks a question on the website that I've never had asked before. This is a question that I've had asked to me in person. This is something I've had conversations with friends who fly fish about, but it's never been something that's popped up on the website. So a lot of my content has to do with small stream trout fishing because that's kind of what I'm most familiar with, and so that's what I write about. And a lot of what I've written about fly rods on small streams has gained traction. So people who uh, research what small stream fly rod to buy and how to choose one, for whatever reason, uh, the Google algorithms like what I've written about small stream fly rods. So those 
quotes and pieces get a lot of traction. And Frank responded to one of them with this question or comment. Would like your thoughts on Euro rods. I have a 10 foot three weight and found that I don't like it for small streams. First, it's too difficult to cast in tight situations. And then when you can cast, it's difficult to cast well. And if that isn't enough, it's difficult to read those cider lines too. Excellent question, Frank. I think that is worth talking about. It's something that I haven't really mentioned. Uh, I kind of put my toes in, in that water when I was researching those long, lightweight fly rods that I talked about and wrote about in the last few weeks. But it's a totally different critter. A Euro rod, if you're not aware, it's a rod specifically designed for tight line nymphing. Now, I am not the expert. I fish this style of rod but I am not super well-versed in all the different varieties and techniques. Um, I know a, only a little bit more about Euro rod fishing than I do about Tenkara fishing. And that is to say, I, I have the stuff, I use it, but I don't turn to it uh, very, very regularly. Uh, but I do enjoy fishing a 11-foot uh, three-weight uh, on larger rivers, that I know have a lot of good holding water in it, and I like just running a tight line nymph rig through some seams to really pull up a lot of fish. So this is a style of fishing that I'm familiar with, but I'm certainly not an expert in it. But I would agree with Frank. I don't like using a Euro rod or a tight line nymphing setup on a small stream. Uh, for the reasons that he said. Um, but actually, I would say the, the first reason I don't like it is because you lack that versatility. I'm not going to use my 10-foot 3-weight uh, Euro rod, uh, my nymphing rod, to cast a dry fly. It's just not built for it. It is, it is way too um, stiff in the butt. It is way too wobbly in the tip. It is not weighted right for casting, and it is really overkill for a delicate presentation with a small dry fly. They're just not built for it. It is, even though that three-weight designation is there, it is not a true three-weight when it comes to traditional casting. And so I would agree with Frank. It's not my cup of tea because when I am waiting or fishing from the bank on a small stream, I can't afford to carry two rods. It's very infrequent that I go to a large river with just a nymphing rod. I usually have one rod strapped to my hip. I use that Vitavu rod holster I've talked about, and I'll have that nymphing rod there on my hip, and I'll be casting my dry fly rod or my streamer rod. Or if I get in a situation where I'm out in the river and there's a nice seam that I really want to hammer and work methodically through, then I'll switch them out, I'll pull out that uh, 10, 11 foot three weight with a big fighting butt and the big old reel and the nice tight line nymphing setup, and I'll work through it. But to just have that, I'm not a huge fan, especially on rivers that are primarily riffle run pull sequences where the riffles a lot of times are the least productive of of the, the water on these small streams. Now that's a broad brush statement, but I can't see the practicality of using a nymphing rod in a pool, and I really can't uh, imagine using it on a on a very, very small run that's in between two small rocks. You can really do the same thing with a nine foot three weight or even a seven and a half foot three weight that you can with that Euro nymphing rod because of the topography a lot of these streams. You're not having to fish these runs from the bank or from 30 feet out 
if there is moving water on a small stream, there's a good chance you can get up close to it and either fish it tight line using an eight foot rod or make just a traditional nymphing cast. So I'm sure there's people that do it and they love it to great success, but I just think that there's much more effective ways to fish a small stream. And then as far as your comment about ciders, I think that cider lines really, that is a learning curve and you have to do it well. If you have slack in there, then it's not going to be something you can read effectively or efficiently. If your nymph rig is too light, then it's not going to do a good job. But ultimately, I, I think a lot of that is just repetition and getting used to it and training your eyes and your hand and kind of getting that spatial awareness of what's in front of you. And I think for some people that happens quickly. It's very intuitive. And for others, it takes a little more time. So I would say, Frank, keep at it with getting that cider figured out. Um, mess around with lengths and weights and things like that to get it dialed in. Because when you are on that bigger open water, it can be an incredibly effective uh, way to fish. Next comment is from John. Uh, John sent me an email, um, and it reads as follows. I came across your site, and you have some really great content for sure. I want to take the liberty with you and ask a question. Hope you don't mind. I read an article about taking your boys fishing on Rockfish River. You mentioned that it has a lot of smallmouth bass. Also, you primarily target trout with a fly rod. I'm no good at that. What I'm looking for is a river that you can do some wading for smallmouth with light spinning. I'll be 71 in September, so I'm looking for a little bit of the easy walking stuff. I'll be reading more of your articles, even though I'm not a fly fisherman. Years ago, in my youth, I did love just plain old fly fishing for bluegill. Have a great day and be safe. Well, thank you, John, and I do appreciate you reaching out, even though the bulk of my content is fly fishing related. But as I've written about and as I've talked about, I see nothing wrong with using a spinning rod, and really there's some situations where I think it's advantageous. I also appreciate your desire to find a place to walk and or wade that is a little bit more accommodating. Uh, as I'm still recovering from my ankle injury, there's some places that I wish I could fish. I just can't fish right now. And so I can absolutely sympathize with the need to find a place that's a little bit easier to get into the water. So my first suggestion would be to talk to a local fly shop and talk to a fly shop that probably utilizes some guides. They will know the places that have smooth bottoms, that have sandy bottoms, and that have easy access from the parking down to the river. Now, oftentimes, these locations also mean easy access, which means more people fishing. And so you are going to probably have to contend with that unless there are some places a little bit further off the beaten track. So, John, without knowing exactly where you're fishing, I would say that would be my first option. I would look at the fly shops and talk to them and get a little bit of insight and explain straight up, this is my situation. These are my circumstances. What can you offer me in the way of guidance? I would say the second thing is just to drive along the river and check out where there are rocky shoals that may be exposed at low water and really keep that in your memory bank so when the water is at a really good fishable level, you know that you can walk out in those spaces and maybe only be shin or ankle deep, but you're able to get out in the middle of the river and make all the casts that you want to make. There's a lot of value in keeping kind of a, a mental diary of what rivers look like when they're low. 
that's happening right now, the Big River by me, there the channel, which I didn't know where the channel was because it seems like when you're out in the river, there's a few big channels. The water's crazy low right now, and it's made it very evident where that channel is, and that has a lot of implications, especially with some of the larger fish and some of the fish that move up from the ocean, that this is probably where they're going to be, and this is some great information for me I can use, certainly in the spring, but really, really year-round. So I would say the same thing for you wherever you live to drive and to check out that water when the water is low. There is so much that you can learn and benefit from. So thanks again, John, for reaching out with a very good question. So the last email that I wanted to mention is actually not an email, it's a comment on the website. It's from Jim and Sue. And uh, something kind of cool happened. So uh, a few months ago, Ed Shank, uh, South Central Pennsylvania, angler passed away he was an author and he was an educator and a fly tire and you if you fished the shanks minnow a little puffy white thing kind of like a woolly bugger without hackle that's very much an overgeneralization or a uh, shanks hopper or shanks cricket or latorque cricket goes by the same different names um then you've fished a, a fly that uh, Ed Shank designed. So he passed away, and I wrote uh, a short little piece because uh, I had fished alongside him and had many conversations with him. And uh, the water that he fished is water that I fished. Uh, we didn't. It, it's hard to put us in the same kind of category because I fished it for maybe ten years, and he fished it for you know sixty years or seventy years. But uh, I wrote, and I had a lot of feedback, including family members that were reaching out, and that was really cool uh, to have that sort of of uh, impact uh, in just a very casual kind of tribute piece to to Ed Shank, a man that I knew um, a little bit. So to have people that really knew him reach out, that meant a lot. That makes that makes writing uh, really resonate. It makes you want to write one more article, you know? So anyway, this comment was from Jim and Sue, and this is what they wrote. I just learned today that Ed had passed. Sue and I are heartbroken. We intended to call him on Father's Day, Little did we know that he had moved on before then. Our subsequent calls never connected. I can't regale people with stories of our fishing trips and exploits. Our relationship wasn't like that. We met Ed at the Allenberry Fly Fishing Schools put on by him, Joe Humphreys, and Norm Shires. Those were wonderful times. We became friends from then on. Ed was a teacher, an innovator, a creative fly tire, and rod builder. He had a tremendous grasp of the natural world. Joe Humphrey said of him, Some guys talk a good game. Ed is the game. To Sue and me, he was our friend. Goodbye, Ed. We love you and miss you. So again, that's from Jim and Sue. That's a really cool uh, memories, and it just shows you. I mean, those are names that, if you know just the slightest bit about fly fishing history, Joe Humphreys, Norm Shires, uh, those are names that transcend South Central Pennsylvania, and those are names that had a great impact on Pennsylvania fly fishing, East Coast fly fishing, and fly fishing in general. It's really cool to trace the lineage of concepts, of products, of conservation uh, back through the decades, and a lot of those lines find their way back to South Central Pennsylvania and names like I just mentioned, including Ed Shank. So there you have it, three pieces of feedback. Um, Like I said last week, I get lots of feedback, and I kind of have to wade through them. I respond to everybody, and that's not a source of pride. It's just, like I've said before, if you've taken a few minutes to reach out to me, it's the least I can do to get back to you. So 
If you have any questions, comments, and of course, accusations about fly fishing or anything else that might be seeping to the surface of my fly fishing writing, feel free to reach out. Matthew at castingacross.com. You can always leave a response to any of the posts on the website down in the comment section, or you can get a hold of me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and I'm happy to see what you have to say. So, this week on castingacross.com, two articles. The first one is called, You Can't Catch Fish Unless Your Fly Is In The Water. Now, to be fair, you can catch fish if your fly is not in the water. I Somebody corrected me on that, and I had it happen very recently, and I had a bluegill jump out of the water as I was untangling some line, and it took the hopper, and I had to deal with a tangle that was getting tightened by a very unhappy bluegill at the end of my fly rod. So you can catch fish if your fly is not in the water. It's just not your best angling approach, if we're going to be fair. Actually, the article brought up a little Twitter back and forth with the guys from Taylor Trash Fly Fishing because they mentioned the unattended dangler. So I guess you could probably put that bluegill story I mentioned in that category. But I had an unattended fly rod uh, that I was in a boat, and the boat was stationary. It was anchored up and fishing, and all of a sudden, as I was dealing with another rod, this thing was gone. I mean, it shot out of the boat, and it was gone. That was it. I don't know what kind of fish it was. I don't know how big that fish was. All I know was that that was not my fly rod. It was my buddy's fly rod, and he actually borrowed it from somebody. So it was a fly rod like twice removed, but it is at the bottom of the sea, and hopefully that fish got free because this was quite a few years ago. But anyway, the whole point of that article, you can't catch fish unless your fly is in the water, is to remind us that we need to take breaks. Because oftentimes when I've had a guide say this to me, or when I've been thinking that, you know what, I need to get the the fly back in the water myself, or when I'm telling somebody that I'm taking fishing, whether it's my kids or somebody I'm, I'm teaching, the reason why the fly is not in the water is because we're tired or because we're zoning out, or something like that. So this article is, in a lot of ways, an encouragement to take deliberate breaks. Uh, You fish better if you are fishing more deliberately. It's better to have 10 good casts than 11 okay casts, and you extrapolate that over the course of an entire day. It is much better to just take a few minutes to pause, stop, don't half fish, half rest, but just take a break. Does that sound silly? It might sound silly, but you might need to integrate that into your fishing. So this article talks a little bit about that. And then the next article was called Panfish, Sparring Partners for Your Dry Fly Game. I love fishing for panfish. Bluegill, pumpkin seeds, sunfish, rock bass, you name it. They're all manner of fun. And this time of year, they are ready to roll. They are smacking stuff off the surface, and the big ones are even up for that and playing ball. So there's a lot of enjoyment that comes from simply fly fishing for panfish. However, you can leverage their eagerness into some great on-the-water training for trout fishing situations, which might involve a little bit of training 
and skill and building up some muscle memory and figuring out how you and your rod and your line and your reel all kind of work together. It's better to figure that out on your local bluegill pond than when you're in the front of a drift boat and you have to make a cast and a hook set at 60 feet. So that's what this article is about. It's talking about some techniques that you can use to refine your dry fly fishing with bluegill either for the joy of catching bluegill, but maybe with a mind and some eyes set towards trout fishing opportunities that do require a little bit more intermediate to advanced skill. So I talked through a little exercise that you can do with bluegill or sunfish or pumpkin seed or whatever in panfish sparring partners for your dry fly game. This week's recommendation comes again from the good people at Whiskey Leatherworks. I talked about Whiskey Leatherworks a couple of weeks ago. I did a short piece on them, talking a little bit about their company, why they do what they do, how they do what they do. And they are out in Montana, and they're doing everything from scratch. And now they have flip-flops. But they're not just flip-flops. They're called fish-flops. Fish-flops. All right, maybe you're not a flip-flop wearer, but there's a good chance that you are. I have a pair of flip-flops that's lasted me, oh, goodness, at least 10 years uh, and I've had a couple that have died very very quickly I would say that the fish flops from whiskey leatherworks are going to last you for a long time which justifies their $125 price tag you might say what $125 pair of pair of flip-flops well first of all you maybe you haven't been out shopping for premium uh, sandals recently because they do get up to those costs but these are american-made flip-flops that utilize bison leather uppers and really high quality rubber uh, bottoms and they also feature of course they're called fish flops a great fish print they come in brook trout brown trout rainbow trout cutthroat trout redfish and tarpon so buy all of them with the exception of the brown trout, make sure you save some in the extra large for me because I think I want those. But they're really cool. They're very distinctive. They use a really high-quality leather in the strap. So, again, these are premium flip-flops, but they're very distinctive. They are what you can get that angler that has everything. These are small batch made. Go to the website. Check them out, whiskeyleatherworks.com. Their splash screen features the fish flops, and you can go and learn more about them. And another cool thing about these is that they have, get this, five-year warranty policy. Five years on a pair of shoes, but on a pair of flip-flops, that's pretty cool. So what they'll do in those first five years is repair or replace, no question asked, for five years. So if you uh, step on a pop-top, as our friend James Buffett did, and blow out your flip-flop then apparently they will replace it which is really cool and these are good people i have all the confidence in the world that they are going to do a good job on the original product but for some reason if you do cause a problem you can uh, go and get a replacement but man they are cool to have that soft bison leather underfoot with the rubber for support and traction and then the uh, prints there's a really good looking pair of flip-flops it's the kind of thing that makes you look forward to those first warm days of springtime so anyway, I will stop gushing about the fish flops from Whiskey Leatherworks, and you should just go check them out and see for yourself. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week 
on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Thank you.